1: a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali.
0: Welcome to episode three hundred and thirty of sexology. Today, we are tuning up the heat with an engaging conversation about fetishes. Our guest today is Nikki Davis Finebloom a Canadian-born New York-based sex educator, writer, and coach with a master's degree in psychology of sexual dysfunction from NYU. Under her belt, Nikki has led hundreds of sex education workshops at renowned institutes such as Planned Parenthood, NYU, and the United Nations, Nikki has extensive experiences working and guiding people with unique desires and navigating ethical non-monogamy and pleasure. I got to know Nikki through the writing that she does, and she always reached out to me with this very interesting article that she's working on about different types of fetishes. So I had the pleasure of getting to know her that way. And if you haven't read her work, make sure you can go to any of the main platform like mind body green, cosmo, refinery 29 and you can find her writing. Today we're going to delve into the following topics. We're going to talk about real life examples of couples who have strengthened and deepened their relationships by embracing their fetishes then we're going to unpack the nuances of establishing boundaries and consent when exploring fetishes, particularly when faced with societal judgment and misunderstanding. We're going to investigate the crucial role pleasure plays in the exploration of fetishes and ensuring both partners are satisfied and fulfilled, and so many more. And if you're craving some excitement in the bedroom, don't miss out on our exclusive Offer if you are interested to bring in excitement back in the bedroom make sure you are downloading our free foreplay checklist, which includes some of my favorite ways to spice things in the bedroom. These are all the ideas that you can implement tonight. I chose the nine of the best one. You could just head over to the landing page below and download it right now. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Nikki Davis Finebloom. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome Nikki Davis Furbloom. Feinbloom. It's a hard one. Fernbloom. I, I I practiced it so many times and I butchered it.
1: <laughs> My apologies it's actually It's a fake name that we made up when we were running away from the Nazis to sound not Jewish, but it sounds so Jewish. So it's ironic. (laughs) I I see why it's hard to pronounce.
0: (laughs) Well, it got me. (laughs) And it's it's so challenging. I don't know why why I have a hard time with it. Well, I'm so excited to have you on, on our show. I know I consider you a friend. We corresponded several times and I know you're like most of your writings about fetishes and kind of like people who are interested in these types of
1: behavior. So tell us what inspired you to delve into this specific topic? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like it fits really well with my being and who I am because I'm very, very shame-free, non-judgmental, open person. So throughout my whole life, I've been the person that people sort of share unique and interesting components of their life with about sex and not about sex. So it sort of happened naturally. And then in my master's degree, I was looking at the effect of irrational beliefs on relationships. And it was found that one of the most common irrational beliefs that sort of leads to less satisfaction in relationships is having a narrow definition of sex. So thinking of sex as something that only involves in the bedroom, like penis and vagina, all that. And that sort of led me to think about how sort of vast sexuality can be. And then when you think of the definition of a fetish, it's basically deriving sexual arousal from something that others might not think of as sexual. So... After I received my master's degree, I went on to work at Mount Sinai Hospital doing sexual assault intervention in schools. And I found even when the workshops I was giving were on consent or sexual violence, afterwards, students would come up to me and basically their main question was, am I normal? And they'd ask like a wide array of things. So some of them would be sort of just myths around sex. So they'd be like, does my hair like can palms really grow hair if you masturbate, which obviously is no. But then other people have sort of shared with me a wide array of different behaviors that they are sort of aroused by or are interested in. And I think that we don't yet live in a sex positive world. So there's so much shame around any type of sexuality that isn't this like narrow, narrow definition that we barely even know what fits in that. Like sex at the tip of the bed. Is that okay? Like it's very sort of specific. So I think that's sort of where my interest came from. And then it sort of happened naturally when I started my coaching practice a few years ago that a lot of my clients sort of had these unique desires and wanted advice and help sort of getting rid of shame, figuring out how to communicate to partners about what they're into and and how to like enjoy pleasure and satisfaction from something that a lot of them sort of hadn't yet talked to anyone about ever.
0: Fascinating. I love that. And I, what an interesting thesis that you had that like the more expansive people definition of sex and sexuality is, the more interesting experiences and more rewarding experiences they have. And I love your work in the kind of field of sexuality and how sex positive you are and the openness. I know you write for so many different platforms and many of the writing that you do is around fetishes. What are some of the common fetishes that you encounter in your work or your
1: from people are talking about and they feel that it's unusual. Mm, Yeah, I think the most common fetish by far, what the research shows is feet, feet and toes. And I think, as you might know, that's one of the only fetishes that has sort of a clear neurobiological explanation for why it may come to be because in your brain, you have the somatosensory cortex. And it just happens to be that the feet and the genitals are right beside each other. So, People have hypothesized that there's sort of these neural misfirings that lead a lot of people to eroticize feet. I work with a lot of folks with foot fetishes, but I also think that just because of my experience specifically with less common fetishes and my writing, I have the folks that I work with might not be the folks that have like the most common fetishes. So I work with a lot, a lot of people with sneeze fetishes. And I think that's because I wrote an article in The Insider recently about sneeze fetishes. And so it's been really interesting working with that. I also work with some folks with pregnancy fetishes. I work with folks with latex fetishes, folks with scat fetishes. It it really runs the gamut. There are so many, basically anything can become eroticized if you're exposed to it at the right time. And that's sort of what I find the most fascinating when you look at the research. So for example, quicksand used to be a fairly common fetish when it was in movies. And now that quicksand is no longer in movies, it's no longer a fetish. Basically, we sort of eroticize whatever we see during this critical phase of development. For example, if you have a brother or sister who's younger, sort of experience your mother being pregnant, you're more likely to have a pregnancy fetish. So I think that that's sort of like an interesting way to think of it is it's just like whatever you're exposed to can become eroticized. And that's why it's so interesting how many different fetishes are out there. I've interviewed someone with a carpet fetish where they just want to be wrapped in a carpet and stepped on and their whole life. That's just what they wanted. Amazing. Oh my God. I want to know about all of these things. <laughs> <laughs> More I see a
0: lot of like, people with fit fetishes, especially like in I know we talked about a little bit in running community. At times I like, get these calls that like people coming in and they keep saying that you know there's something going on and I don't want I don't want to tell, tell my partner. Like I, I was making joke with my friend, fifty percent of time it's a fit fetish foot fetish that someone has, and that's 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 it, that they're thinking it's so common and people feel like because of how society kind of like the narrow definition of what's quote-unquote normal, people kind of have lots of shame about it, even though it's it's a common fetish. How do I know about
1: sneeze fetish. As fetishes? Is this, a right? is this a sneeze fetish? Yeah, yeah, sneeze fetish. So, so the folks I work with, a lot of them, they're sort of turned on by the concept of their partner sneezing. And it's often they're also usually aroused by noses or have like an affinity towards a certain type of nose. And when I first heard of it, I was like, huh, this is interesting. But now it kind of seems logical to me in the sense that, When you sneeze, it's like you lose control and then like some liquid comes out, which is kind of the same as an orgasm, right? It's like it builds up and it releases. But there's been so much shame. Like a lot of folks that I work with, it sometimes takes one or two sessions before they even tell me why we're talking and what we're talking about, because there often aren't a lot of spaces for people to share. But I do think that there are these fantastic online forums for almost every fetish. And I think that the internet has really done a lot of positivity towards people with less common fetishes because you can... Sort of find your community of people that are turned on by the exact same thing you are, and realize you're not alone.
0: Amazing, right? And I think it helps people to feel kind of like understood and normalize the things. And it's, it's so fascinating. I never, I, I didn't think about the uh, parallel between kind of sneezing and sexual experiences. And I and with so many of these things that when when we get curious about it, it makes sense, but. Generally, as a whole society, even in a more of a open-minded societies, there's like some negative perspective to our fetishes. So how do you, have, based on your experience, what's mainstream idea about fetishes? How do they view it? What are some of the misconceptions people have about it?
1: yeah i feel like the main one is it's just like a creepy dude who's like stealing women's underwear and like sniffing them so i think like to break it down i think first of all a lot of people think that fetishes always come from trauma which is not at all the case i think it can definitely for some people that i work with it has but for a lot of people as i already said it's related to just what their experiences were as their sexuality was developing and that's sort of what has become eroticized i think another misconception is that fetishes are really rare But when you look at the research, like a recent study out of Montreal found that almost half of people interviewed were aroused or intrigued by at least one type of fetish. So not all of those folks would necessarily be like a full on fetishist or define themselves that way. But it's like the definition of sex we have is so narrow. So when you look beyond that, it's like there's so much to be excited by. And a lot of people have these fantasies or desires towards something that don't fit into this. I think the other thing is you sort of think of folks with fetishes as... People that are sort of like alone in their room, not with a partner. But a lot of people that I work with have partners, and a lot of the time their partners know about their fetish and they work together with them and explore it in a pleasurable way. So it's not necessarily something that needs to be explored alone. It can be. Another stereotype is that it's only men that have fetishes. And I think although there are a few more men than women, it seems to be, but there are a lot of women I work with women. I think specifically sneeze fetishes seems to have a lot of sort of queer women and women sort of turned on by that. Similarly, the lunar community, which are folks who are turned on by balloons, also have like a lot of women. So I think that's also a stereotype. And I guess another one is just that people with extreme fetishes can't have healthy relationships because I really believe that they can. We just don't see that in the media. And I guess finally, also that they don't have control. So we kind of think of them having this encompassing fetish that takes over their whole lives and leads them to behave in ways that are usually unhealthy. But the vast majority of the people that I work with, it's they have control over it and they're turned on by it. They're just trying to figure out how to navigate that in a world where the world that isn't always accepting of them, but it isn't so much that they don't have control. It's more that they don't have the communication skills to talk about it.
0: I love that that you brought up all of those misconceptions and it's unfortunately many of those are portrayed in the media are kind of like thinking about people are creepy or like manipulating their partners to do things or surprisingly doing certain kind of acts without consent. And I'm sure there are people out there that they do that, but my experience is that many people bring in their fetishes, their uh, sexual interests to their partner and to the relationship. And that helps them to have a stronger and more intimate sexual experiences.
1: I'm kind of curious, have you had those experiences with your clients as well? Yeah, 100 percent, because I feel like disclosing a fetish or talking about your desires is what I work with all clients with, even those that don't have fetishes. It's about having the vulnerability to sort of open up and explore what it is you like and then sort of say it out loud which is definitely something that we don't have many examples of. And it's sort of difficult to do. So when folks sign up for my website, I have like a free yes, no, maybe list that I send out. And that's sort of the first step is to be like, what are you interested in exploring and what aren't you? And I think for those with fetishes, it's exactly the same thing. And when I ask people sort of when people ask me, like, how do I disclose to my partner? I think it's really about starting by asking your partner, what turns you on? What are you interested in? And then from there, they'll ask you and the conversation kind of naturally happen. And then For a lot of people that I've worked with, it's like they were having very sort of generic sex or they were having like a certain kind of sex for years. And then it's like through having these conversations where they were vulnerable and honest about their desires, the sex got better for both partners because they had the communication going and they figured out how to talk during sex and how to debrief after sex and how to navigate boundaries, which are all skills that make sex better in general. So I think that by communicating about your fetishes, for the most part, it does lead to more connected, pleasurable sex. I think the only times it doesn't is when, for whatever reason, the partner just isn't educated enough to understand that the fetish can be okay and that they yuck their yum or make them feel bad for what it is that they like, which I think is happens some of the time. But for the most part with my clients, like when they share their fetish with their partner, it's usually something that they need to sort of process for a bit and then they're okay with at least, if not exploring it, at least okay that their partner is into what they're in. I think it's the
0: kind of shame, internalized shame around that can make it difficult for people to Communicate that about their desire, as you mentioned. That it's like we at times we have this critical view and shaming view of other people's interests. But when it falls outside that quote unquote normal range, so I think it's it's wonderful that you have these experiences that you can bring the part of yourself that we might be different than your partner's erotic template, and you can have this conversation of whether it fits in shared experiences or it's something you can do on your own and still but then have a issue in the relationship. So when people are kind of exploring the boundaries, well, how can they negotiate that? Like if you haven't done a behavior before, how would you know that what would be what would go into a scene? For example, if our partner tells us that they have a balloon finish, how do we know what would that mean?
1: And how can we set boundaries around like what we might be comfortable with? That's a great question. So I always recommend taking it slow because I think what I've seen happen sometimes is when people like try one scene and it's a little too intense and then they kind of get scared and never do it again. So I recommend taking it slow and having like in that first conversation, the person who has the fetish, I think it's helpful to find some type of media to show their partner just so their partner can visualize it because Balloon fetish can mean so many things. Like even hearing that before I researched it, I was like, what does this mean? Like balloons are fun. Are we like throwing them in the air? Are we sitting on them? Are we using them as a tool for sexual stimulation? Like it can mean so many things. So I think that that's one of the places that porn can actually be helpful because it's like you can there's so much interesting, like fun key porn out there that you can find related to different fetishes. So I think either having a visual way to show your partner, of course, only if they are consent to seeing it and they're like seem receptive but also even just writing out a list of like sort of small small ways to explore the fetish and how it can sort of grow over time so like for example with a foot fetish like the first thing might be let's watch a video a porn of feet while we have sex or let's like lightly have someone touch their foot against your body while you're having sex and then as it escalates it may be down the road, it would be cool to have a foot job or it would be cool to like put a foot inside like some type of body part and see how that feels. But I do think that this is something that needs to be discussed verbally beforehand. It's not really something you should just like go for and see what happens because people have different definitions. And I think having a clear understanding and taking it slow is like the way to have it be what you want. And for the partner that doesn't have the fetish, I don't believe that they should do anything that they that goes against their boundaries. But I do think that it's rare to have someone that has the exact same desires as you in general. I think in relationships, we all have different desires. So I recommend that if they're open to it to sort of try a little taste and see how it feels. And if it turns out that they're like okay with it, but they don't love it, then maybe that's okay as long as like the next time they have sex is all about them and what they like. Because sometimes it's sort of, there is a little bit of compromise, which isn't like a sexy word, but I do think that for people with fetishes, sometimes there is that middle ground that could be found. I agree with you. Tell people that, of course, you don't want to do something,
0: as you mentioned, that's against your boundaries. So if it's like a zero is I like, hate it and 10 is like, this is it. Like as soon as it shows up, I, I'm going to climb back. Yeah. <laughs> you want to like be at five, right? That like, it's like neutral. I would say like if you something feels neutral, like give it a shot. If you have a good relationship. And I'm hearing that maybe like if you there's a sexual generosity that you're doing something that's a five, hopefully next time your partner will be more willing to do something that a five for them and it's like maybe eight or nine for you. I know it's not about give and take, but I, but one of the things I've noticed that the couples that are sexually generous toward each other, they tend to have greater sexual experiences Oh, yeah. um, I love that you talked about sexual, kind of like explicit content, porn. I know the community of FetLife, which is a community mm. of people or like a social media community for people interested in fetishes. What are some of the places that can people watch the content that specializes in fetishes and it's not, it feels more but
1: better are done? Because there's a galaxy of options when it comes to explicit content out there. Definitely. I think it's hard to find the great stuff on like Pornhub or the mainstream ones. So I like looking at more like queer women-owned sites, but also specifically with unique fetishes. I think cam sites are the way to go if you're able to afford it, because a lot of the time you can curate a scene for you based on like exactly what your desires are. So a lot of people that I work with, that's sort of their main way to explore content. But it's also, depending on the fetish, they all have their own sort of sites and content. So ballooners are those that are turned on by balloons, which is like another one of my niches that I work with. And for them, they have a whole site of just like interesting, fun balloon related content. And similarly with the sneezers, often like depending on the fetish, there's sort of their own site and the site has its own content. Even on Reddit, there's really good, like if you type in whatever your fetish is, there's probably some interesting stuff. And I think it's also healthy to connect with others that have your same desire, especially if maybe someone's in the place where they haven't yet told many people about their fetish. That's been really healing for a lot of my clients to just kind of find other people out there and just put it out there and realize, oh, maybe I'm okay. Maybe there are other people that are sort of turned on by the same thing I'm turned on by.
0: And what a great way of reducing shame, kind of noticing that that's something other people are interested in. And, and also it helps you, gives you ideas on how to kind of get creative in your sex life. I tell people like sometimes I watch porn as a kind of a recipe, kind of like a book to kind of think about what are some of the different recipe that you can cookbook that you can recipe that you can take a look at. So I think that also can give people idea or your partner ideas or maybe you can talk about this seems interesting, but this other thing is not my thing or it's not. A, it's a maybe now. But I think it's a great way of talking about an experience that feels more neutral because we're talking about someone else's experience versus if you're coming in and saying exactly. this is this is what I like. And then the person might feel like, OK, like I don't want to reject. You know, one thing that's very interesting is that the, it's like fetishes.
1: I hear that not all fetishes are sexually connected. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I think it's defined as just a unique interest in something. So fetishes differ from kinks because kinks are kind of like deemed as anything that society has not yet deemed as normal. So anything that falls outside the bounds of what is normal behavior. But fetishes, from what I've seen, are very specific and they usually develop at a younger age and they usually sort of stay throughout life. And I think maybe just because of my background, most of the people that I've worked with, it is sexual. But I've heard of people that like are really interested and excited by something. Mm So the carpet man, like he said, since he was little, he just people wanted someone wanted to be like a fireman and someone wanted to be a police officer. He just always wanted to be a carpet. And he's living his best life because in New York, he gets hired to work as a carpet like three nights a week. So it's kind of like and I don't think he is fully aroused all the time. I think it's just this is sort of how he's found meaning in his life and what he sort of wants to offer to the world. And I think that it can be the same with a lot of different fetishes because you just become like uniquely intrigued by something. And I think, yes, it can involve a sexual quality, but it doesn't necessarily have to.
0: I love that. And I love that kind of like the opportunity for people to live their authentic lives and kind of like leaning to the things that they find exciting and pleasurable. And I like that you talk about like the kind of like giving yourself permission to talk about these things. But I agree with you. Consent is huge. Like when I was younger, like I had like so many experiences that I had that people were pulling out, doing random stuff during sex without kind of talking about it, right? That like thinking about, okay, like we could have talked about it, but now it's a no. Thankfully, I never had a kind of horrible kind of assault experience or kind of like something that went horribly wrong, but didn't, it it just, I wasn't as open when people were doing things that wasn't discussed. How can we get consent when it comes to behavior during sex? Like if you wanna kind of incorporate fetish into sexual experience, what do we need to keep in mind?
1: Yeah, that's so important. I kind of think of it similarly to navigating a BDSM or kink scene in the sense that you don't want any surprises and you want to have a conversation before about where the boundaries are. And I think when I work with clients, it changes. So I think it starts slow. So maybe the boundaries of the first time is kind of we're just going to talk about the fetish, we're not even going to include it. We're just going to get comfortable talking about what we would do with it and then see how that goes. And then maybe the next time you navigate, OK, Let's see what it's like to like dip our toe into this and see how that feels. And I do think that similarly to kink scenes, it's helpful to have a safe word or like something that you can say if at any time someone crosses the boundaries. But I think that it's really helpful to have sort of very clear definitions before the scene of what's going to happen. And I think if it's going to escalate, I usually like to tell the person that doesn't have the fetish is the one who would want to make it escalate instead of the other person sort of feeling putting the person on the spot to try something new. So if the person that doesn't have the fetish is enjoying it and they're like, okay, now I sort of want to try this next step, whatever that is, I kind of like putting it on them to escalate it so there's never any pressure. I love that because, again, the other thing
0: that we talk about when we talk about consent is like an enthusiastic yes. And people at times think about like, you know, the the fact that someone is going along with something that means consent. But the, I, I love this idea of someone that's something, this is something new for them, escalating it. So like they, by them taking initiative and doing that kind of next step, it's in a way it's give, give the, them giving consent. How us like do you think consent or needs of course like verbal part is a huge part do you think it has a
1: verbal component a non-verbal component or do we have to go only with the verbal component tell us more about that i think it's a little different when you're trying something for the first time so i like to tell people is if it's your first time trying something especially if you're a little unsure i think verbal is the only way to be certain that both people are on the same page but i think sort of down the line it can change because some people don't like to talk during sex and they might find it unattractive. But I have a whole workshop that's about how do you make consent sexy? Because I think there's a way to ask someone in a way that's seductive and exciting instead of being like, I will now touch your boob. I will now twist your breast." like there's a way to make it fun and authentic. But I think if you've sort of been with a partner a long time and you've engaged in the activity before, I think there are ways to look at a person's nonverbal body language and sort of see if they're into it, especially if it's your partner and you know what they look like when they're turned on and when they're into it. But I do think that there is a lot of misunderstanding that can happen, especially with a newer partner or with a newer type of dynamic if there is no communication. Because when we look at trauma, like if you feel like you're in a freeze response, that's the most common reaction to trauma. So if Maybe someone's been sexually assaulted in the past or maybe there's something about the scene that's traumatic to them. They might not have the words to be able to tell their partner, hey, I'm not liking this right now or like stop. When I used to do a lot of consent workshops, the sort of most profound example of this was a case where someone was getting sexually assaulted in the dorm and their friend was like in the bunk bed below and they couldn't call out to their friend. And that's because when you look at the neurobiology of trauma, it's like when you're in that space, you don't have access to your frontal lobes, the part that like consciously think So it's really that old part of your brain that's trying to make you survive and like get to the future, whatever that is. And so in that case, they just like couldn't speak out. So I think it's very important if you're going to use nonverbal communication to really, really be in touch with your partner, to know them well and to make sure that they're not, for whatever reason, not enjoying what's happening or having some type of trauma response.
0: I agree with you. That it's really important to kind of first of all kind of look at the dynamic of what's happening. Of course, again, if like at any dynamic, you want to make sure you have consent. But it's different if like I have a partner that we we're together for ten years. And like, like if we're doing the same behavior, we're doing like version one point two of it. Maybe I don't want my husband to ask me, "Do you want me to do that?" <laughs> you know, like exactly. in more of a kind of a non sexy way. But even with that, there are ways that you can make that sexy. That seems like it's a workshop that that you have for people that they can take. But I think when it comes, especially to fetish, it, when it comes to kinky behavior, things that you're doing for the first time. Maybe it's helpful to have the verbal and nonverbal kind of like cues in place that if, if we, and you are in the moment that you cannot even kind of access your language kind of like part of your brain, kind of like verbal part, you can just use nonverbal cues. Hopefully you're going to have awesome experience regardless of what fetishes, any kind of behaviors. Of course you want to have consent, but something to keep in mind. And sometimes people kind of like try it as a one and done thing. Like, okay, like it's your birthday, let's do kind of experiment with foot fetish or something of that nature. It's not my thing. But sometimes people are curious about it. For the couples that they want to continue experiencing it on an ongoing basis, what are some of the suggestions you have for them?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I hear that a lot. Couples that sort of try it once and that's it. And I think sometimes it's like they don't communicate it well beforehand or they go too fast. But sometimes it's like a fine experience, but they sort of leave it at that. So I think that is very common. And I think I recommend when I work with couples that anyway, they have at least like a biweekly, if not a weekly sort of relationship check in. So I recommend that they add that as one of the topics to discuss to sort of make sure that it's an ongoing discussion, not just something that both partners know about, but they never talk about. And I also think it's helpful to have like a really good debrief after the first time, because I think a lot of times worked with couples where they tried something a year ago, and then for some reason, like a boundary was crossed, or it just wasn't what one person thought, but they never talked about it. And then they just didn't do it again. So I think for both partners to want to get in the place to try that again, they need to talk that through. So I think it's really important if, say, you're a couple that's tried something once to talk about it with your partner. What did you like? What didn't you like? What would you be interested in trying again? And what wouldn't you be interested in trying again? Because I think as with any part of sexuality, it really takes a few times to figure out that balance of like what feels good for both partners. So you shouldn't expect to have like a one evening thing and figure it out. I think that's not that's very, very rarely how it goes. So it kind of needs to be like any component of sex where you keep trying, you you try new things and You might be surprised like I've had times where the other partner initially is not into it, but then in the right dynamic or the right mood, they find an overlap and they find a way that makes it feel good. But I really think it's about that continued exploration and again, making sure it's a back and forth. So it's not only doing what the partner with the fetish wants. It's about both partners sort of making sure that they're enjoying sex and they're trying new things. And I think taking it slow is helpful for that. So instead of trying like the most intense thing right away, it's like you try something slow and then you slowly build up over sometimes weeks or months or even years. I agree with you. I think it's really helpful when people have the ability to debrief
0: And I think it's, it requires a certain level of ego strength to be able to receive feedback. Of course, we want to be tactful with how we communicate things, but sometimes, you know, we're so excited about something and our partner might not be excited about, about it. It doesn't mean like you're a bad person. I kind of like compare it to food. Maybe it's my favorite pizza, like, but maybe my, partner doesn't like pineapple pizza. So I think and that's doesn't mean like I'm a bad, bad person or my partner doesn't like pizza, but it's just that specific thing. So I think it's helpful to talk about it,
1: but also not internalize it. Exactly. And I think for some couples, one partner just isn't into it and that's okay. And I think that with those couples, it's like, how do we have the one partner that has the fetish Be able to still explore that with themselves so maybe for them it's something they mostly explore through fantasy and porn and maybe that's okay or maybe there should be a conversation about opening up the relationship it feels like it's something they need to explore with people so i've worked with someone where their partner wasn't into it but they said if you just do this one act i'm okay with you sort of going to fetish clubs and doing this act because you're into it and i'm not into it so i think the most important thing is to not take it personally if your partner isn't into it and realize that as you said they just like different pizza and that's okay
0: Well, I I see that you know a lot about this content and I know you write about it and you do coaching and I love everything that you do in, in this space. Tell our listeners, where can they get a hold of you and what are some of the kind of teaching offering
1: that you have for them? Awesome. Yeah. So I'm Brooklyn based and I've recently started producing a lot of interesting events around Brooklyn, which has been super fun. So I have a monthly trivia night in Greenpoint. I have a Dirty Talk workshop every few months, and I also have workshops on opening up your relationship, consent, all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. So to the easiest way to find me is to sign up for my mailing list, which is NikkiDavisF.com. And then there should be sort of a pop-up where you put in your email. So it's N-I-K-I-D-A-V-I-S-F.com. And I also post about all my events on social media. My Instagram is Miss Bloom Sex Educator. I love it.
0: I love the Kind of, I saw that you put a clip of the trivia, like on the, on one of the events on your social media. I know it's so fun. And hopefully you do it in West Coast and in LA. And I would love, I'd love to be part of it. So thank you so much, Nikki, for
1: coming on the show. This was definitely a treat. And hopefully we will have you in our future episodes. It was so lovely. Finally talking to you in person. Well, it feels like in person closer to person than usual, because I usually love reaching out to you for comments on my articles because you're always so witty and thoughtful. So I appreciate that. And I would love to meet you in real life at some point. Likewise, likewise. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. Have a great one.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode, where we delve into the world of fetishes with our incredible guest, Nikki. We hope that this conversation has provided valuable insights and guidance for exploring your desires and navigating the complexities of fetishes within your relationship. Fetishes are certainly more common than you think. There was this very interesting study that was published in 2017. The title was The Prevalence and the Nature of Fetishistic Fantasies in General Population. And the researcher found that among the general population, 44.5% of respondents reported having at least one fetish fantasy in their lifetime also they discovered that 26.3 percent of respondents had engaged in fetishistic behavior at least one this study highlighted that the fetishes are more common than generally perceived and various types of fetishes were found among the respondents so if you have a certain fetish you're definitely not alone and maybe if you open up with your partner in a tactile way, you may be able to incorporate that as part of your sexual experiences. Or maybe if you bring it up to your partner, first of all, it can help you to feel closer to them. And also, you might get surprised that they might be interested in the same thing, or they might be open to exploring it. Or maybe they have something else that they're interested in, and you can exchange ideas next time on how to spice things in the bedroom if you are enjoyed this episode please don't forget to subscribe rate and review our podcast it's really help us to rank higher your support means a lot to me and it helps us to be encouraged to produce more research-based relevant sexual health content Join us next time for another enlightening episode of Sexology Podcast, where we'll continue to explore topics that empower you to embrace your desire. And this month, we are focusing on psychology of relationships. So you want to make sure that if you want to upgrade your knowledge about how you can improve your relationship, this series is for you. All right. Until next time, take care and keep the conversation going. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast.